Let's turn together in our Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 11. Verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we consider this wondrous event that took place through your son 2,000 years ago, we pray, Father, that the reason that it was recorded for us would be grasped this morning, would be understood, that we wouldn't leave here this morning missing it. Father, we know that Your truth is what sets us free, not the words of men, not the ideas of men, not hearing from me, but hearing from you. That's what really matters. And Lord, you have something to teach us from this story and from this text. And I pray that you would. I pray that you would help us listen, help us have ears, Lord, and receptive hearts. Help us see that same glory that was revealed in your Son, when he did this so long ago. Help us see it again today. Lord, please encourage us through your truth. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, enlarge our understanding in our hearts. Fill our mouths with worship. Do this by your Holy Spirit. Work through the preaching of your word, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. I know that most of us, if not all of us, have been to a wedding. Now, is there anyone here who's never been to a wedding? Can I see your hand? Nobody. Now, sometimes you'll find a child who's never been to a wedding. I remember when I was a kid, I had never been to one for a while. I would be greatly surprised to find an adult who's never been to a wedding. For as long as human beings have lived on this earth... There has been weddings, and according to Jesus, until he returns, until Jesus returns, there will be weddings. In fact, one of the 
One of the things he even said is that people will be marrying and giving in marriage right up until the end, kind of clueless that everything's about to end. So right from the beginning and all the way to the end, there has been and there will be weddings. You can't live long on this earth without encountering weddings, going to weddings, and you know your friends and your, or your family members or you yourself are going to get married. Weddings, like eating sleeping, and not loving our neighbor is basic to human life. Okay? <laughs> we marry, human beings marry, and they celebrate marriage. Why do we do that? Because God made us that way. He hardwired us to marry. And then not only did God make us that way internally, but he actually gave us the sacred institution of marriage. He brought Eve to Adam, and he told us this was a good thing. And so we celebrate it because we recognize it as good as well. It's natural to us, and it's from God, and it's good. And so we celebrate. If someone objects to this and says that not everyone marries, and therefore how can I say that it's basic to human life if not everyone marries, I refer them to Matthew 19, Jesus' own words about why people don't get married. And he says, people don't get married only if it's a special gift from God, right? He says it's given unto people, some people, to not marry for various reasons. It's, a, it's part of God's gift. And therefore, they are the exceptions who prove the rule that it is basic to human life that we get married. Just as it's basic to human life that if you take a step out onto water, you're going to sink, that's basic to human, that's normative, and yet not all have sunk, right? Some people walked on water, Jesus and Peter. Those are the only two that I know of. <laughs> but they're the exceptions that prove the rule. It's basic that you sink, and it's basic to human life that we marry. Now, why am I stressing the basic nature of marriage and weddings in human life? Why am I stressing that that is essentially what human beings are designed to do. You can probably guess where I'm going with this. Because as we learn in the New Testament, marriage, the bringing together of a man and a woman, and that's what God designed us to do, and that's normative, and that's his good gift. Marriage is a shadow or a picture of something far greater, far more uh, substantial, a picture of Jesus Christ and his church. God created human beings to marry, to illustrate this great mystery, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And Paul says, this is a great mystery. I speak of Christ and the church. Basic to human life is the mystery of the gospel. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Great is this mystery, for it is shadowed in the fabric of human existence, and it will be substantialized for all eternity. And I don't mean in the sense that our Mormon friends believe, that marriage is going to be forever in the sense that you and I will be with our human spouse forever and ever. No, when I say marriage will be substantialized forever, I don't mean it in that way, but as the great marriage between Christ and the church. That will be for all eternity. There will be marriage. So in a sense, 
Ultimately, nobody misses out on marriage but those who reject Christ's proposal. This morning, our passage, as we've read, takes us to a wedding, a typical human wedding, a joyous occasion. And yet it also takes us to a crisis, a human and social crisis, and also to what John calls the first sign of Jesus. The first sign of Jesus, or another way we could put that is the first significant miracle of Jesus. By significant miracle, I mean a miracle that has a point, a miracle that points to something beyond itself. It's a familiar miracle, the famous miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. And so we're going to examine this miracle this morning, the turning of water into wine in the context of a wedding. So first, we'll look at the occasion for the miracle. Secondly, the miracle itself. And then lastly, the meaning or the significance of the miracle. So firstly, the occasion for the miracle. Let's look at verse 1 and 2 together here. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited To the wedding. Now, on the third day, commentators are agreed means the third day after Jesus' encounter with Nathaniel in the previous chapter. And since both Mary and Jesus are there, this wedding is probably the wedding of a family friend of Jesus and Mary's. Perhaps even a friend that Jesus grew up with. Who knows? Maybe someone that Jesus knew growing up, someone about the same age as Jesus, perhaps who's getting married. I'm just speculating. But it's, it's probable that this is a family friend who's getting mar- married. And Jesus is not only invited to the wedding, but he went to the wedding. Okay? You ever been invited, not gone? Some people do that. Not Jesus here. And this tells us two, at least two important things about Jesus. Number one, Jesus was not an ascetic or a social recluse, okay? Now, there are some people who think that the essence of true religion is renouncing society, renouncing the basic pleasures in life, right? And that's what an ascetic is, is someone who's trying to cut themselves off from pleasure so that they might get closer to God. Jesus was not like that. He was not an ascetic. Unlike John the Baptist who spent his time in the wilderness away from human society and who did not partake in the common food and drink of everybody else. You know, he ate the wild stuff out in the wilderness. Unlike John the Baptist, Jesus, we know from the Bible, went town to town, house to house. He participated in meals, festivals, parties, and synagogue life. So Jesus was fully involved in human life as it is normally lived. D.A. Carson, the commentator, comments that Jesus' first miracle takes place at a wedding is designed to prevent and is designed to prevent serious social embarrassment marks Jesus out as far removed from the monastic asceticism of hermetic communities like Qumran. And in Jesus' day, it wasn't 
uh, like there was no hermit communities. There were hermit communities who thought it was more spiritual to distance themselves from everything that smacked of basic human life. Jesus wasn't like that. He participated in normal human life, just like you and I do, and he, he set his seal of approval upon it. In fact, the leaders of Israel's hostility to Jesus and John the Baptist is seen more clearly in the light of this. You remember in Matthew 11, Jesus describes the leaders of Israel in his day, and he says, you know, you're like little kids that we just can't please. You know, we play a dirge for you, and you don't, you don't mourn, and we play a happy song, and you don't dance. John the Baptist came neither eating, drinking, not doing all the normal stuff, and you rejected him. And the Son of Man comes doing all the normal stuff, and you rejected him too. It seems to me that you reject us because of the message, not because of our practice, you see. And so this actually shows us that it was the truth of the message that they were preaching that drew the hostility. We Christians also are rejected by the world primarily because of our message, because of the truth. You can change the way you live, okay? You can fully integrate into the culture. You can withdraw from the culture, and they're going to hate you as long as you maintain the same message. If you want to be fully accepted by everybody, just lose the message. Stop preaching the gospel. Stop preaching the truth of who human beings are and who, who God is. Then everybody will like you. But if we do preach the message of the gospel then let's not be surprised when we, you know, we live the life that everyone else is living and they don't like us. And we, we can say, hey, I went to your wedding. Hey, I, I watch movies too, you know. Hey, what's, why don't you like me? We know why. So the first thing is it shows is Jesus was no ascetic. And the second thing it shows is Jesus' attendance and celebration and even the rescue of a wedding shows his full divine support of marriage. He rescues the wedding. He celebrates the wedding. And it shows his full divine support of marriage. This is a point that's been noted by commentators since the earliest days of Christianity. John Calvin commented, It is a high honor given to marriage that Christ not only deigned to be present at a nuptial banquet, but honored it with his first miracle. Perhaps people wonder, if I get married, that it puts a frown on God's face because I'm not going to serve him full time anymore. You know, maybe God's disappointed me. I didn't take the high road when I got married. And that's simply not true. In fact, if Jesus were on the earth when you got married and you invited him to your wedding, he would have gone and celebrated it with you. Jesus celebrated marriage. Joyfully celebrates marriage because it is God's idea and he created it. However, it's relevant in our time today to remember that it is God's institution of marriage that Jesus honors, which is the marriage of a man and a woman. God does not honor all that man defines as marriage. Now here's another question. I asked earlier if there was anyone who had never been to a wedding, and I had no hands that went up. I want to ask you another question. Just think about this. What would you say are essential components of a wedding? What would you say are essential components of a wedding? So meaning, if you're going to have a wedding, you got to have these things in it for it really to be a wedding. We all have an idea of lots of things, but we all have an idea of weddings and what they should 
be like, right? I think you all do. Think about it. What a wedding should be like. Both as individuals, we have an idea of what a wedding should be like, but corporately as a culture, we have an idea of what a wedding should be like as well. And it can differ culture to culture, individual to individual. I think everyone in our culture would agree that there's these components that you have to have there. You have to have a bride and a groom, of course, right? Our culture would probably say, you have to have a ring. If it's a ring, you don't really have a wedding. Some people might say you have to do it in a church. Some people might say you have to have cake. Certainly, you have to have your friends there. If your friends aren't there, it's not really a wedding, right? Or another cultural idea of a wedding that we think it should be this way is it needs to be fancy. Everyone needs to dress up. It needs to be not something that we all come in casual clothes, right? So it needs to be fancy. Our friends got to be there. It should be a ring. And then there's more specific things. Some people might say, you got to have dancing. But there's no dancing. It's not really a wedding. Have you ever been to a wedding that lacks components that you think should be there and you think that wasn't really much of a wedding? You ever been to that? Or have you ever been to a wedding that you just thought was the greatest thing and you said, that was a wedding, right? That was what a wedding should be. What are those components? Dancing, live music, reception with delicious food and everybody there. In the first century, in the first century, a Hebrew wedding had to have wine. That was the component that had to be there, at least one of the components that had to be there. There had to be wine. Wine was the symbol of life, joy, and blessing. And so you have to have wine at a wedding. It contributed also to the merriment of a wedding. Man, if there's not going to be wine, it's not going to be as fun and merry. You've got to have a party. For that, you need wine. So for different reasons, wine was essential to a first century wedding in Israel. I remember when Bethany and I were getting married and we were looking for um, a reception hall to use. We, we looked around all over the valley and almost every place that we found that, that, were, you know, that were reception hall were dry, you know? <laughs> They're like, we, no, you can't have any alcohol. And um, the few that said you could have alcohol, they're so expensive, and we found a place that we really liked, but they couldn't uh, let us have alcohol. And so I wrote a letter and begged the guy. <laughs> I said, please, I really can't imagine a wedding without wine. And I, I assured him, I said, look, we're Christians. We're, we're, we don't believe in getting drunk. We believe that's wrong. It's not going to be that kind of a, uh, a reception. No one's going to get drunk. But we are going to, we would really like to have wine. It just, we don't think it would be a celebration without that. That was what we personally felt. And thankfully, the reception hall we used said, all right, you can have one. It was great. Look at verse 3. We have a crisis. A first century Hebrew wedding would typically last about a week. So you're supposed to be celebrating, having lots of joy and merriment for a long time. The wine ran out, it says in verse 3. Why did the wine run out? Was it an oversight? Did someone not plan to have enough wine there? Or was, there not, was, was the number of guests not planned? 
The wine ran out. Seems like there was some kind of an oversight. But the wine can't run out. Not only will that ruin the fun of the wedding, that's a bad omen. It's like the bride falling off the stage, you know? And it's like, this is a bad start to a wedding, (laughs) to a marriage. So it's a bad omen. And it's also an embarrassment and a shame because it does reflect on the poor planning of the wedding company, of the wedding arranger. So this was a real crisis. Things were not as they should have been. And Mary seems to know that the wine ran out. Perhaps the mother of the groom is in the back crying. Maybe Mary knew the mother and saw the mother crying and says, Oh no, we're out of wine. What are we going to do? And she goes to Jesus. Now when Mary went to Jesus, did she expect from him a miracle? Did she go to him and say, Jesus can make stuff out of nothing? He's done it before. (laughs) Well, we don't have any evidence that he did any miracles before. And most commentators think that Jesus, that Mary didn't go to Jesus expecting a miracle from him, but she knew he was the Messiah. She knew he was from God. And Jesus had proved wise and resourceful countless times before. And so she probably went to Jesus, not knowing that he'd perform a miracle, but just saying, Jesus, we have a problem here, and you always seem to know what to do. Now look at verse 4. Jesus' response to Mary has shocked countless readers. In the first place, his response is shocking because he answers his mother with the word woman. That's that's shocked readers. Then and now, by the way. Not just in our modern culture, but even in the ancient world, that's shocked readers. And secondly, what he says to his mother is shocking as well, because he says this interesting phrase in the New American Standard, what does that have to do with us? Now, some of your translations will be different. The translations differ on this this, uh, phrase. Some translations will say, as mine does, What does this have to do with us? And others will say, what do you have to do with me? So there's two different options here of interpretation. First is, what does this crisis have to do with you and me? It's their party. It's their problem. That's one way of interpreting this. It's not not our problem. The other way of interpreting it is, what do you, woman, have to do with me? Why are you telling me what to do? Why are you coming to me about this? What do we have to do with each other? I'm missing the connection here. Why are you talking to me right now about this? (laughs) Now, both of those are shocking. Both of those are shocking, okay? Both of them are arresting. They make us stop and say, what is Jesus saying to his mom? Undoubtedly, brothers and sisters, I think, undoubtedly, it is the latter that is the meaning here. What do you have to do with me, woman? That's the meaning. The phrase is actually a common idiom in, in Hebrew, and it's actually found in both the Old and the New Testament. And I'd like to take you to one verse in the Old Testament and one in the New where the exact same phrase and idiom is used. You'll get an idea for what's being said. Judges chapter 11. 
Judges chapter 11. Verse 12. Judges 11 verse 12. So this is a Hebrew idiom that has had, had a, has had a long history. Judges 11, verse 12. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? So he's like, what do we have to do with one another that you're coming to me to fight? You want to fight me? What do we have between each other? There's nothing here. I'm missing the connection. Why are you coming to fight me? What's the point? Is there a problem between us? I don't see it. What is it between you and me? Same idiom, actually. And most of us are familiar with its usage in the New Testament as well. Matthew chapter 8 is a good representative example. Matthew chapter 8. Verse 28. The people who... the Not people, I suppose. The ones who use this idiom the most in the New Testament are demons. And they say it to Jesus. When he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent, no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What do we have to do with you? I don't see the connection here. Why are you coming? It's not the time yet. It's the exact same phrase and idiom. I'm not saying only demons use this idiom. It was a common idiom. I'm just saying in the New Testament, we find it most frequently on their lips when Jesus came to them. So when one king comes to another king, the king says, hey, what are you coming to me for? What's going on? When Jesus comes to the demon, the demon says, hey, what are you coming to me for? What's going on? And when Mary comes to Jesus, Jesus says, what are you coming to me for? What's this all about? Does that lessen the shock at all? Well, let's consider this, these words of Jesus. First of all, when Jesus calls his mother woman, there's no hint of rudeness whatsoever. There's no hint of rudeness. It is not him saying, what's the matter with you, woman? That is not, that is not, that is a modern corrupt thing to say. That is not at all what Jesus is saying. In fact, if you notice in the Bible, Jesus calls all women, women like that, or woman. So that is the way that people would call, uh, would address a woman in in a formal, polite kind of way. Kind of like if someone says, um, ma'am, madam, lady, that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. The shock of it though, the shock even in the ancient world is that he's calling his mother that. That's the shock of it. So he's not being rude, but it is strange because he's calling his mother a phrase that clearly distances them. Instead of saying mother, he says madam, lady. Probably, I would guess, and I'll make this, this will come out more as we, uh, as we go on here, but 
Perhaps a term he, doesn't, he never used to call his, mo- his mother. He might have always called her mother. We'll, we'll, maybe, we'll consider that in just a moment. But the point here is that it's not rude. He's not being rude. This is the way Jesus talked to other women, but it's a shock that he's now referring to his mother this way. In, Matt, in John 19, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he also calls his mother woman. And he cares for her by putting her under John's care. So there's no rudeness there whatsoever. Jesus is clearly redefining their relationship here, but he's not repelling her away from him. Second thing to notice is Jesus is not actually saying no to Mary. And she apparently understands that it's not a no. Jesus' answer doesn't make her think, well, there's no hope now from him. She's ready to say, hey, servants do whatever he says. So whatever Jesus says to her doesn't communicate to her, get out of here, I'm not going to help you at all. That's not what he's communicating. In fact, Jesus does the miracle. He helps. This is what it seems like Jesus is doing. He's letting Mary understand something. Madam, if I do this, it is not because of my family connection or obligation to you. I love you, Mother, but what's going on here is bigger than you and our friends, dear lady. He's communicating to her not that he will not do the miracle, but if I do this miracle, it's not going to be because of the reason you think. Oh, mother's asking me for a favor. Okay, mother, let me help you. And Oh, friends are in trouble. Okay. But since Jesus has just begun his work, now, this, is, this may even be the first time that Jesus saw his mother since his baptism and wilderness temptation. So Jesus has been baptized The Spirit has come upon him. He went into the wilderness. He resisted the devil for 40 days. He's come out of the devil. He's gathered some disciples. And now he's at a wedding. This is probably the first time Jesus has seen his mother since he's begun his work. And what characterizes his work, brothers and sisters, especially this is seen in the Gospel of John, is that Jesus only does what his Father commands him to do. He only does what he sees the Father doing. He only speaks what the Father says. He only does what the Father gives him to do. He's not doing things now because of anything else, not even because his mother wants him to do something. I'd like to read to you a paragraph from D.A. Carson's commentary, which I think is just so helpful. Please listen carefully, and I think this will just really help the point. We must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He has embarked on his ministry, the purpose of his coming. His only lodestar is his heavenly Father's will. This must have been extremely difficult for Mary. She had borne him, nursed him, taught his baby fingers elementary skills, watched him fall over as he learned to walk. Apparently, she had also come to rely on him as the family provider. 
But now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, even family ties, listen to this, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. She could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. It is a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. This is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provision for her future. But she, like every other person, must come to him as to the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Neither she, here's an important point, neither she nor anyone else dare presume to approach him on an inside track, a lesson even Peter had to learn. For no one could this lesson have been more difficult than for Jesus' mother, Perhaps that was part of the sword that would pierce her soul. For this, we should honor her the more. Do you see the point? It wasn't just, yes, mother, I'll be obedient to you. What would you like me to do? It was, lady, you need to realize I do what my father tells me to do. And in Jesus' response to Mary, as his response to so many, Jesus sees in this mundane situation a deeper spiritual reality. For look what else he says, uh, look at what else he says to his mother in John chapter 2, verse, um, verse 5. Or verse 4, excuse me. Woman, what do you have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Here's a loaded statement. Don't you notice how Jesus so often, someone says something totally mundane to him and he interprets it in a deep spiritual way, right? Uh, Jesus, you need to eat something, you're hungry. I have food that you know nothing about, right? (laughs) They say something mundane to him, meaning nothing more than the mundane, and he interprets it in a spiritual way. He's always thinking like that, and so it is here. He sees in this situation, in the context, something deeper. My hour hasn't come. He's somehow connecting the situation with his hour, the request with his hour. What is his hour? All throughout the Gospel of John, this is a major theme. This is the first of nine statements that talk about his hour. And throughout the Gospel of John, the drumbeat is, my hour has not come. My hour has not come. My hour has not come. They couldn't get a hold of him because his hour hadn't come. And then finally at the very end, on the night of the betrayal, Jesus finally announces and says, my hour has come. His hour is clearly the hour of his death, and it is the hour of his coming. It is the reason that he came into the world. In fact, he says this, I came into the world for this hour. That hour begins with the betrayal of Jesus, and it culminates in his resurrection and his glorification. That is the hour for which he came. He didn't come into the world merely to do all those other things. He came into the world to die. That was the reason. But isn't it fascinating that he sees somehow a connection with his hour here in this mundane request? The wine's run out. My hour's not come. (laughs) The ultimate purpose of my coming hasn't arrived. You are telling me there's a crisis. 
things are not as they should be. Do something about it. Don't you see what Jesus is hearing? Actually, there is a crisis far weightier and more serious than this one. Something way more serious and important than wine is gone. And the stakes are a lot higher, the pain is a lot more intense, and the shame is a lot more real and serious. Things are not as they should be, I agree. And you're telling me to do something about it. Well, I came into this world to do something about it, but my hour's not yet come. You're telling me to fix the problem. I've got a problem on my mind. Now, all of this probably went over her head, but she did know he wasn't saying no. She knew Jesus well enough to say, he's doing that thing again where he interprets things in a greater, bigger way. (laughs) Servants, do whatever he tells you to do. (laughs) This brings us to the miracle. Now, the miracle is quite straightforward, so we won't take a lot of time looking at it. In verse 6 to 10, we find the miracle. It's a marvelous, fun, and deeply significant miracle, brothers and sisters. This is a really cool miracle of Jesus. There's six stone water pots that can hold 20 to 30 gallons each. That's a lot of liquid that those can hold. Archaeologists have actually dug up some of these pots. They're huge. And the reason for the detail, why these, the measure of the pots are given, is so that we can appreciate the proportion of the miracle. We can see how great this miracle was. Jesus tells the servants to fill up the water pots, not just mostly, but right to the brim. Fill them up completely. And then he surprises them by saying, now take some of the water out of the pot, Give it to the headmaster. And they obey him, amazingly. And when the headmaster receives this water that had turned into wine, he declares that this water, uh, this wine is the better wine. He says, most people serve the poor wine first, and after everybody's drunk a little bit, and they don't really care how much, how good the wine tastes, then they give the worse. But you have saved the best wine until now. Together, that would be something like 125 gallons or so of wine. Now, just to put that into perspective, at our wedding, we had six gallons of wine, for, and that was way more than enough for 150 people. So there's a ton of wine here. It's a lot, and it's the best. It's a lot of wine, and it's the best wine. It's good wine. Reading this reminds me of a, something Dostoevsky says in the Brothers Karamazov, And he's talking about a party, and he says that the wine made up in quantity for what it lacked in quality at this party. Not so Jesus. There was both quantity and quality here. This miracle is an example of the unlimited power of Christ over nature. It's an ex nihilo miracle. That is, he just made wine out of nothing. There was no prior stuff. He just turned the water into wine. He didn't need yeast and sugar and all that stuff, or even grapes. He just, wine, best wine. It was an example of compassion for the host, mercy for the host, 
If it was because of poor planning, he could have said, they deserve it. He was mercy, his compassion, pity upon them. And it's an example of his abundance. He could have filled one of those jars. It would have been plenty. He could have filled them halfway. It would have been plenty. He filled them to the brim and gave them all that wine. So we see something of the abundance of God. And this is also an example of the excellence of God, for he made the best wine. How good was that wine, I wonder? Brothers and sisters, do we not need a God like that? Powerful, compassionate, merciful, abundant, excellent. He is our God. That's a wonderful truth to take away from this story. People object and say, how could Christ contribute to sin and drunkenness? That's enough wine to devastate everybody. (laughs) Seriously. There's so much wine there that it would have... I mean, that's like... what Some people are confused about why Jesus would make all this wine. It seems like he's contributing to this drunken party of sin. So many people interpret this as grape juice. I think that we can disregard that interpretation on the surface. The headmaster says it's better wine than the wine we were drinking. This objection and confusion, how could Jesus make all this wine? Everyone's already drunk a lot and he makes more. It seems like he's sinning. This is a confusion that misrepresents and misunderstands Jesus' culture. Jesus' culture, you have to remember, was not pagan but religious. It was Jewish. And they were zealous for God in that culture. And that culture enjoyed drinking wine. But that culture saw drunkenness as a sin, right? So they were enjoying wine, but in that culture it was a sin. Sirach uh, 31, 35 says this. This is written before Jesus. Wine was created from the beginning to make men joyful and not to make them drunk. Wine drunken with moderation is the joy of the soul and the heart. Sober drinking is health to soul and body. That was the culture. So when Jesus makes a lot of wine, he's not contributing to drunkenness because in that culture, while they would enjoy wine, they wouldn't get drunk. It is not the presence of an abundance of wine that leads to drunkenness, but the lack of moderation that leads to drunkenness. There's no doubt they were making merry, but they were not drunk, and they needed wine to continue their merriment for a week. What we have here, brothers and sisters, is an amazing, wholesome, compassionate, lavish act of God. And this brings us to our last point this morning, the meaning of this miracle. This is the most important now. In verse 11, John includes a summary statement that closes off the story. He says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So a few things right off the bat here. First of all, as wonderful as this miracle is, John says it's just the beginning. So that's an exciting statement. This is an awesome miracle that reveals the compassion and power of God, and it's just the beginning. Second of all, John says that this miracle was a sign. That is, Jesus' miracles were not just brute displays of power to make us go, wow, he's powerful. But they're signs, which means they carry significance and they point to a reality beyond themselves. They communicate something about himself and about the truth. So when we read this as a sign, we need to ask, what does this miracle 
point to about Jesus. And these signs are meant to produce faith in Christ. As you see in verse 11, the result of this sign was that they believed in him. And John, at the end of the Gospel of John, says that there are so many signs that Jesus did, but I've only chosen these ones so that you might believe in the name of the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. It's through faith that we have life. God wants us to to understand who Jesus is and to trust him with our life, our present, and our future. And we learn about him through these pointers. And verse 11 says that this sign manifested his glory. See that in verse 11? First of all, that tells you that Jesus is God. For his acts are revealing his glory. No man can say that. No mere man can do that. It, anything that a mere man does should bring glory to God. But the acts of Jesus revealed his own glory, and we wonder and we worship him for them. This is because he is God. The miracle is not meant to merely show us that he has glory, though, but it's meant to show us the nature of his glory, which John says in the prologue is full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory, and it was full of grace and truth. So now we have to ask, in what way is this miracle full of, reveal the glory of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth? Just to hold this sign up amongst uh, other signs, think of the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospel of John, in which it reveals that Jesus is the bread of life. Think of his healing of the blind man, which reveals that Jesus is the light of the world. Think of his raising of Lazarus, which reveals that he is the resurrection and the life. All of these miracles are not just meant to say, wow, he's powerful, but they tell us something about him. He's the one who brings true life. This sign shows us that about him. And so how does the miracle of the water into wine show us that Jesus is the one who brings life and is full of grace and truth? While there's many suggestions, I believe that in order to understand the meaning of this miracle, we have to think back to another ex nihilo miracle in the Old Testament, very similar to this one, but in a way it's opposite. Can you think of which one I'm thinking of? I would like you to think of the very first deliverer, redeemer that God used to deliver Israel the establisher of the old covenant with God. And I'm thinking of Moses. And Moses, when he was sent to Israel, uh, to Egypt, to deliver Israel out of Egypt, the beginning of his deliverance out of Egypt was a miracle in which water was turned into blood, including water in the vessels, in the Egyptians' houses. That's when... After Moses says, let my people go, and he wouldn't, then he says, okay, judgment's coming upon you. And the first one was the turning of water into blood. That miracle itself is packed with meaning. Blood represents death, judgment, God's wrath. And by turning all the water in Egypt into blood, he wasn't just making the Egyptians cry that they didn't have any water. That was one thing it was doing. But it was also a statement and an anticipation of what was to come. 
You resist God, guess what you're going to get? Death. Blood. And that's exactly what proceeded to happen after that, all the way to the destruction of their firstborn and taking Pharaoh's life and his army's life in the waters of the Red Sea. So the first, the beginning of the deliverance that Moses brought to Israel was a miracle similar to this one, but in many ways it's opposite. The turning of water into blood, which is an anticipation of death and judgment. And here we have Jesus, the true deliverer of Israel, the true redeemer, the establisher of the new covenant, and his first miracle is turning water into something too. But not blood, wine. And wine, brothers and sisters, as we know, in the Bible is the symbol of blessing and life and joy. But it's a symbol of God's blessing. One of the things the prophets like to say is that when God blesses you, there will be an abundance of wine. And so there's so much meaning here in that the old covenant ministry brought death, but the ministry of the new covenant brought life. And as water turning into blood was a sign of wrath, the water turning into wine was an anticipation of all that Jesus was going to do, and particularly in his hour for which he came, to bring us blessing. Now, how does such blessing come to us? How can God just come and say, abundance of wine for you all? I want to bless you, sinners. We need to remember that there's a weighty crisis, much more weighty than what's going on at this wedding. Mary said the wine is gone, but brothers and sisters, the crisis in the world is that righteousness is gone. There is no righteousness. There is no justice. There is no uprightness, and things are not as they should be. You know, when we think of a wedding, we say it should be this way, and when God thinks of a world, he says it should be this way. When we think of a party, we say a party needs to have these components, and when God says, when I think of a human being, it has to have these components, love for God and love for a neighbor. And if those components are there, that's not a human being, as I designed a human being to be. And we have a major crisis because things are not as they should be. We deserve death. We deserve judgment. We deserve wrath. We deserve shame for being not what we should be. So how, therefore, can Jesus come and bring blessing? Is it by discarding judgment? Does God say, ah, there's been enough judgment. I'll put judgment aside and just bring wine now. Is it by purification of water, like the Jews thought? We keep the laws and the ceremonies. That will make us right with God again? No. But brothers and sisters, I want to remind us this morning that the blessing of God comes to us not by the discarding of judgment and not by human rituals, but it comes to us by the hour that Jesus Christ came into the world. He came into the world to take our unrighteousness and our sin upon himself and to die for them. All that blood and judgment and wrath predicted by Moses, that was funneled to Jesus, into Jesus Christ when he was dying on the cross. And it is only because Jesus propitiates God on the cross by bearing our sins and paying the penalty that we deserve and exhausting God's wrath on our behalf that Jesus can suddenly show up and bless us. 
You guys are unworthy. You guys deserve shame. You guys deserve death. And I'm going to turn water into wine. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. This is what Jesus is seeing in this situation. This miracle is a sign and pointer to Christ, the establisher of blessing, the Savior of sinners, who delivers us from our ultimate crisis. And if the, wedding at the, if the miracle at the wedding reveals his compassion, his abundance, and his excellence, how much more his salvation through his death. Those, in, those who believe in Christ are not merely forgiven and justified, but the Bible says they become his, a member of his bride. Marriage, as I said, is basic to human beings. It's been around since the beginning. It continues on and it will continue till the end. The shadow, until the shadow turns into the substance. And for all eternity there will be the blessing of the marriage between Christ and his church, all of those who accepted his proposal. The only ones who are excluded are those who reject his proposal. This is truly an amazing first miracle in all that it points to and alludes to. When Jesus Christ returns, brothers and sisters, we'll hear these words Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And what a wedding that will be. And it's a blessing to all who believe because he comes bringing that blessing because he came to die for us. Let's pray. Please stand with me. Father in heaven, as we read the Bible, we pray that you would help us not to miss the deeper significance of what seems mundane. And we thank you this morning again that Jesus is the one who turns water into wine and covers our shame. Thank you for your Amazing mercy and grace, because, Lord, we don't deserve any of your goodness, only your wrath. Help us to realize this more and more, that we would grow in our wonder and amazement, and that we would worship you with thanksgiving. And, Father, we are excited for the wedding to come, the true wedding. And, Lord, thank you that we who have believed are a part of that. Oh, Lord, you're so good, and we give you thanks for your great love. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.